This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Today I have with me Karen Woody. Karen is an assistant professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law. Karen is a former compliance practitioner in private practice and has also taught at the University of Indiana Kelly School of Business. Her specialty is the Securities and Exchange Commission. So we're going to visit today about FCPA issues related to the SEC, where the SEC may be going in 2020 in terms of enforcement, Jay Clayton's abortive attempt to change the whistleblower payout, and what Karen is focusing on from the SEC in the upcoming year. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today, you are in for an Uber treat, uh, because I'm in for an Uber treat. And we're going to have Karen Woody join us. Karen recently joined the faculty at Washington and Lee, and she's going to tell us a little bit about her journey. But first of all, Karen, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Tom. Um, You have a really great and fascinating background, uh, legal professional, and how you got to WNL. I was wondering if you could tell the audience a little bit about that. Sure. Um, Well, my... uh uh, background is one that goes from practice to academia. I started uh, after law school practicing law in uh, D.C., doing mostly white-collar investigations um, and internal investigations doing corporate defense. Um, that took me kind of around the globe on a number of global FCPA investigations, as well as other sort of massive uh, multinational internal investigations that dealt with accounting fraud or securities fraud and some insider trading matters. Um, so my work involves, um, like I said, investigations and then also drafting compliance programs, for clients, negotiating with um, the DOJ and the SEC on a number of these issues. So that's, that's how I started out right after law school. And while I was practicing in DC, I, uh, I was an adjunct professor uh, for a number of years at DC area law schools. And eventually, um, about five years ago, decided to, to make the transition to jump into academia full time. Um, so my initial appointment was with the business law and ethics department at the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University, where I, I taught um, business students about uh, securities and about uh, corporations and things like that. And then just this year, as you mentioned, I, I moved to Washington Lee University School of Law, so back to a law school where I am teaching law students about uh, securities and corporations. So that's that's been my journey. So the, um, the thing I wanted to visit with you about, Karen, is to take a little bit of a deep dive into the SEC 
year in FCPA enforcement. When we talk about FCPA enforcement, oftentimes the sort of lead discussion is around the uh, Department of Justice, the criminal penalty, perhaps criminal sanctions. Uh, but in uh, many ways, the SEC component is at least as equally interesting for the compliance practitioner. So uh, mm-hmm. kind of with that introduction, how would you assess the SEC's year in FCPA enforcement? Or banner year, I think, for the SEC in terms of FCPA enforcement. I mean, by the numbers alone, the agency's enforcement activities seem to be on the rise, um, outside both in, including FCPA and beyond the FCPA. So I think they, they have netted over $4.3 billion in fines and disgorgement. And that was as of early November when um, Commissioner, uh, the Chairman Clayton was discussing that with Congress. Um, and that so that didn't include this week's settlement with Erickson and the FCPA, which netted the SEC another $540 million in disgorgement um, and interest. So again, the numbers of enforcement actions have ticked up. I think this year we're at about 16, somewhere in that, in that range. Um, individual prosecutions also or, um, seem to be on the rise from both the SEC and DOJ, which also seem to have been one of the trends we saw this year. Uh, and so I think, it, I think it was another big year for the SEC. They certainly are not slowing down in FCPA enforcement. This, the numbers reflect that this year. Karen, I was wondering if there are one, two, perhaps even three cases that really uh, intrigued you, uh, struck uh, an accord with you, or you found noteworthy from the SEC perspective in FCPA enforcement this year? Sure, there were there were a number. Um, one I I was fascinated by and have been sort of closely watching was that uh, was the Deutsche Bank case that involved referral hires or relationship hires as they called them in the Asia Pacific region of of the bank. Um, and, and those were hires of the SEC alleged were done to generate business. And this is a situation where the bank is hiring uh, a relative of a government uh, employee in the Asia region. And um, oftentimes, at least the SEC alleged that uh, the Deutsche Bank management would, would, would ask sort of what the role that that referral or relationship hires parent or relative performed to determine whether or not they would hire them. So there was even um, allegations up there where they tried to quantify maybe the amount of uh, money or business they could generate by hiring those particular individuals. I mean, it's an interesting case, and it's certainly not the first time the SEC has dug into this type of issue. We saw years ago, J.P. Morgan and other banks have been um, caught up in this same type of, uh, of issue. Um, I thought what was interesting here is, again, that the SEC um, – Acknowledged that the that Deutsch had had a hiring policy and had had internal controls on this exact type of issue, and that the bank had created um, a questionnaire that the bankers had to uh, fill out when they were looking for approval to do one of these type of hires. Um, and so, it, what was interesting to me was again this idea that the SEC took sort of those questionnaires and those uh, the hiring documents there as and considered them to be the books and records that um, that set the stage for what the falsifying books and records charge came in on um, for that. So these knowingly false or inaccurate documentation surrounding the the hire became uh, became the record that 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 uh, was the basis of the 
books and records charge. Um, and so for that reason, I was, I was mentioning uh, that this reminded me a little bit of uh, the stretch in terms of how we determine what a record is or book and record uh, for that charge. And it, rem- it reminded me a bit of what the SEC had gone after BHP Billington in 2015 on, um, you know, somewhat similar type of allegations. In that case, it was about hospitality cards that employees of BHP Billington had to fill out in order to invite certain individuals to events during the 2008 Beijing uh, Olympics in China. And so despite sort of a very, again, robust internal control measure with, you know, required documentation on who was attending, similar to Deutsch, required documentation on who you're hiring or not. Um, the SEC took those documents, those hospitality cards, and considered them the records that, again, was the basis of a books and records charge, even though at base that really wasn't internal controls um, or a, a lack of robust internal controls. So I thought that was an interesting parallel to me. Obviously, there are differences between those two enforcement actions, in Deutsch, obviously, there is the hire, so there's arguably this sort of type of transaction and or bribery. And the SEC even, you know, tried to close that loop by pointing out the quantification of maybe business that Deutsch could get from doing these hires. So it is a much stronger case in the Deutsch kinks than maybe BHP, which did seem to be sort of squarely an internal controls uh, um, case. Our enforcement action. So, um, but I did think it was interesting that what, you know, what the SEC is taking just is sort of straight, any sort of documentation at one of these uh, institutions can count as a record, such as if anything is false or sort of problematic on them, that can, that can bring in addition to it, I, a books and records charge. So I, I thought that was an interesting idea, um, an interesting use of how the SEC is taking a broad interpretation of that term. Um, this year also marked the conclusion of the Walmart case. So we still have seven years of that investigation. So it's hard to avoid mentioning the significance of that one. It was a major case. And if anything, that case I think does stand for uh, how important it is um, that, you know, companies understand the breadth of the, uh, you know, monetary burden that will have. In that case, we saw nearly 900 million in legal fees and things. And the, the enforcement action itself only netted about a third of that, just shy of 300 million between the DOJ and SEC. But the the true cost of that undertaking to the company, this you know, can't can't be overlooked. That just that seemed to me to signal just how important um, this is. Even if you know the numbers from the DOJ and SEC are already are very high, but you know it's an interesting point, but that's, that could sometimes only be scratching the surface of the total cost. Right. So typically, uh, or perhaps anecdotally, I would say uh, people tend to think of your non-enforcement cost, meaning not your fine and penalty, is two to six times your total cost. And uh, you're absolutely right. The, the Walmart case, I think, in many ways stands for that proposition that if you don't have a robust compliance program in place, the um, investigative cost and pre-settlement remediation cost uh, can almost be catastrophic, uh, recognizing this is the world's biggest commercial uh, consumer commercial outlet. Nevertheless, it, uh, 900 million is still 900 million. Right, right. So we have a very interesting Supreme Court case coming up that has direct application, not only to the Securities and Exchange Commission, but also to the FCPA and a wide variety of 
of other laws, and that is uh, Louis and Wang are the plaintiffs who have challenged the, I guess, constitutionality of profit disgorgement by the SEC. Um, could you sort of set the stage for us for that case for us, uh, Karen? Yeah, it's a it is a fascinating case. Um, it's going it's on the dock to be heard in March at the, at the Supreme Court. It is, um, you know, I guess my for background here, it, it's it's important to note that in 2017 the SEC had decided a case called Kokesh, and in that case, um, the Supreme Court decided that uh, disgorgement that was sought after by the uh, SEC. Is considered to be a civil penalty and therefore was subject to a five-year statute of limitations. Um, and the court tried to cabinet to only that, saying we're only basically deciding on whether or not this is a statute of limitations case or not. But, you know, that there's a very famous footnote in that decision um, that, like I said, attempted to say this is only dealing with whether or not the applicability of statute of limitations is, is appropriate here or not. But the footnote also had an interesting line in general that, that essentially did question the ability or the authority of the SEC to seek disgorgement in, in district courts at all. So that case certainly raised a lot of eyebrows and a lot of you know alarms at the SEC about, wait a minute, you know, given everything we have just discussed, disgorgement is a major part of the SEC's um, you know, uh, penalty scheme or certainly their restitution. Uh, so it's a major remedies question here. And so what Lou and his wife, um, I think I'm saying that right. It's uh, Lou or Lee. I think it's Lou. Um, his wife uh, are contesting there is they're, they're questioning um, nearly this 27 million in disgorgement um, that they were forced to pay as a result of uh, a, a case that was over 35 million uh, in the judgment, eight of which was a, a penalty that, this other was disgorgement that they um, were required, you know, essentially that was what they had gotten in ill-gotten gains from investors. And what they were doing, they were misappropriating funds under um, an immigrant investor program. Um, it was essentially a, a visa scam in that they were taking advantage of an element of a visa program for immigrants who would invest in businesses that create uh, jobs in the United States. Um, and so they raised funds um, for what was to be a, a cancer treatment center, um, but didn't end up building a cancer treatment center and instead moved the money to offshore accounts. Um, and so they, however, are, are really trying to capitalize on this enormous decision and sort of enormous shift in what, how we consider the authority of the SEC to demand disgorgement that we saw after Kokesh. So uh, they're essentially doing exactly that, just question whether the SEC has the power uh, to seek disgorgement um, at all. So it's, it is a very big, it's a big case and has significant um, ramifications to the SEC because we know how much they, you know, the agency does seek in disgorgement, particularly in FCPA principles. But it does, you know, it does highlight sort of the a broader principle of uh, remedies um, and statutory remedies and sort of, as you pointed out, you know, maybe even the constitutionality of this type of thing, given that disgorgement might be considered a penalty. You know, it's funny, I had written something similar to this a few years ago when the pilot program launched about the DOJ demanding disgorgement in declinations, 
when the SEC wasn't a party to the case, so this would be private uh, companies, so non-issuers, where the SEC did not have jurisdiction. And the DOJ demanded disgorgement um, to the Treasury, but at the same time issued a declination. And I questioned the you know constitutionality of that, of essentially saying if, you're de- if this is a true declination, meaning you're declining to prosecute, can you also demand ill-gotten gains in the same breath? Or is that you know, a little bit of an oxymoron. If they did do something wrong, you know, at least maybe call it an NPA or something, but to say a straight declination might not be, might not be the proper term. And so, you know, and I, I also sort of more broadly questioned, you know, the equitable remedy there and its availability to the SEC, you know. So it was, it was an interesting paper. I, I wrestled with a lot of these same, same issues. But I do think regardless of the outcome of this case, you know, whichever way the Supreme Court goes on this, there are ways, you know, around maybe the decision in that we've seen already a few FCPA cases that have had, you know, massive settlements that have classified the fines as something other than disgorgement. So, in, for instance, the MTS case this year, the Russian telecom case had, you know, uh, an SEC had a civil penalty of $100 million, but it was not classified as disgorgement. Um, and, you know, it had that was, I think, over eight hundred fifty million dollars in fines. But again, so if this is a semantic question of what you know, what is what is the authority by which I'm demanding this uh, amount? Is this penalty? Is this restitution? Is this equitable? Or not? At the end of the day, it might not it might not totally matter if they can cl- couch it as something else dependent on that are, you know, the sentencing or some penalty authority that is authorized under other statutes. And, you know, finally, if, if it is sort of an earth-shaking decision by the Supreme Court, there always is the ability to have a legislative fix, um, meaning there can be a new statute passed that grants broader authority to the SEC to, again, uh, have the ability to seek to seek disgorgement. So as, as, as sort of, you know, significant as this case is, there could be sort of and around it at the end of the day, depending on which way it comes out. So, but it's, you know, it's definitely one, one to watch, one to watch. Certainly everyone who's involved in SEC enforcement is, is very much uh, interested in that. Karen, I wanted to uh, change the focus directly to SEC Commissioner Clayton, if I could for a moment, sure. because one of the uh, controversies I think that he found himself in was around the uh, proposal to change whistleblower awards and specifically to limit the top end uh, whistleblower awards. Uh, that was uh, released in uh, proposed change by the SEC. Um, comments were taken. Uh, there was a large number of, of uh, commentators who disagreed with that approach. Uh, at one point, there was, I believe, uh, a commission meeting where there was a, going to be a vote set on that proposal. That meeting was canceled. Now we had some remarks uh, recently by uh, Chairman Clayton that uh, at least I thought indicated he was backtracking somewhat from an interpretation that would have said uh, they were going to, uh, the commission was going to restrict the top end of uh, whistleblower awards. Uh, Is that a a kind of a fair timeline and assessment or did it really go in a different direction from your perspective? No, I, that's exactly how I would describe it. Um, I don't. I don't know enough. I don't think about what was driving that original proposal, or sort of what what the agency was after, or maybe just trying to to again cap how much they're they're handing out to others. <laughs> frankly, um, 
But that certainly was met, as you said, with sort of a, a, uh, a groundswell of, of people disagreeing with that and really thinking that cut against really even the spirit of this uh, whistleblower bounty program. Um, and so even just, just this week, I believe, Clayton was um, on the Hill speaking to the Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs, and, and certainly did backtrack and say that was a misinterpretation of the change, that it was not intended to create a cap on whistleblower awards. Um, and so he, he definitely seemed to suggest that that would not be something the agency was seeking to do. And so I, I think that that might be kind of dead on arrival, that, that proposed change. So now if I could uh, ask you, uh, are there any SEC issues you're watching from your academic perspective or things that uh, particularly intrigue you around the commission now? Yeah, I mean, some of them are um, the shakeouts of things that had happened recently. For instance, um, the, the Lucia decision about the constitutionality of ALJ, um, uh, people at the SEC, uh, the ALJ process after that ruling in 2018 that, you know, held that the in-house judges need to be appointed either by the president or the agency head rather than just being mere employees. And then that resulted in that, you know, basically the SEC scrambling and, and reappointing, you know, fixing that in terms of the constitutionality, but then also granting a number of rehearings under cases that have been uh, tried and heard by those um, ALJs. So I think that has sapped some of the uh, resources of the SEC recently and, um, and also have resulted in some changes in some of the outcomes of those cases. So I, I, that's just been an interesting thing to watch. I know, um, that was a, a fascinating case that had, you know, ramifications beyond the SEC and sort of to a broader, you know, the role of ALJs in the administrative state um, sort of in total. So I, I thought that was an interesting one to keep to keep an eye on. Like I said, that's sort of winding down, but how they handled that particular issue has, has been interesting. Um, in terms of other issues, uh, you know, the... Um, the SEC is not going to take its foot off the gas on FCPA at all. Certainly um, not when it comes to, again, looking closely at even just how robust certain compliance programs and internal controls are. Um, taking, again, a broad interpretation of a number of the elements in that statute. Uh, and so I think we'll see more focus on that as well. We saw just this week, like I said, a sort of a blockbuster um, enforcement action against Ericsson. And the Erickson one, again, you know, seemed to be on the trend that we've seen recently of a lot of international companies or foreign companies getting roped into this uh, law, sort of uh, Reptilia and other sort of non-American uh, companies um, being the focus of this. And also just general industry focus, um, which right now I do think is a lot of banking, financial services, They'll move into fintech, you know, and, and the SEC certainly is going to keep wrestling with this, with, you know, the emergence of cryptocurrency, cur cryptocurrencies and, and how to regulate them. So it's, it's a fun time to be someone who is interested in the SEC and SEC regulation. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be working on, certainly. And now let's uh, perhaps turn to the veiled land of the future. And what uh, might you or we, I guess, perhaps expect from the SEC in 2020 or will the election consume all? Will Jay Clayton try to push some or all of his agenda through before 
before the election? Where do you see 2020 going for the SEC? That's a great question. You know, it's a, it's a great question. The SEC, I feel like, a, uh, as compared to some other agencies, sometimes seems somewhat immune from, you know, sort of wild swings dependent on administrations. Obviously, the commission makeup is one that might shift because of it, but I don't, it does seem to be fairly staid at times. Um, but, you know, I think we've seen, you know, pushes toward, uh, you know, whether or not he's going to try to jam a lot of this through before an election. I, I don't think that will happen. I, I think they've made progress on um, the additional disclosures, ESG, thing, ESG disclosures, Regulation SK. We're going to see some more of that, um, bringing back even some of these um, extractive issuer disclosure. So disclosure, I think, always will still be the hallmark of a lot of that work. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure beyond that, you know, if there are major sort of jewels in the crown that Clayton wants to get done before them, before that. I, I think there's definitely some issues that are interesting that'll, that'll keep arising. I think the, the, the you know, the trend, or maybe not the trend, it's only been a few, but the idea of a direct listing will be certainly something that we will get more, uh, sort of guidance on and, you know, we'll see sort of more maybe companies toying with that in terms of um, how to go public in that manner. So there's certainly a lot that Clayton has on his plate, but in terms of things I think he's pushing through, I, I'm not certain that I think there's one priority over the other, but I, I may be wrong on that. Well, Karen, unfortunately we are near the end of our time, but this has just been a, a great conversation and a fascinating exploration. I greatly look forward to continuing the conversation. I do, too. Thank you so much, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As this is the final episode for 2019 and indeed for the decade of 2020, it seems like a good time to reflect on where we've been and where we are going. I hope that you will have a most joyous and most importantly safe New Year's Eve. And I look forward to visiting with you again in the new year of 2020. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.